Let me pray for us tonight, and we're going to dive in. This is going to be kind of an ongoing, this is going to be the introductory conversation to this thing, and then we'll, we'll learn some here tonight, and we're going to go from here. So you'll get as much out of this as you put into it. And so whatever you put into it, you're going to get back out of it. And, but I would rather you put in some if you just know for your job or whatever, you can only do half of the curriculum. That's, that's half more than you would have done otherwise. So I'd rather you do part of this and be here some. And we'll post the recordings on the podcast channel. And if you missed that night, you can listen to it and keep up and you'll grow. So let's pray together. I'm going to pray tonight. Most nights, I'm going to have somebody else pray because this is going to be as much of you doing as possible uh, and not just me talking. So I'll start us out tonight and then we'll go from there. Lord Jesus, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for uh, what you have done to bear the burden of our sins and your own body on the cross, that you have risen from the dead that you have ascended to heaven, that you've sent out your apostles to plant the church, to see new people come to Christ in salvation, and that the local church would be built up. And now here we are in another country across the ocean in a different place of the world than where this started and uh, thousands of years later and is still going. We know that the local church is your plan for reaching the nations. And that it will continue until you come again. And so I pray for our time together. I pray for these earnest men and women that have come here tonight, that you would help us as we seek after you, and that you would, uh, in your way and in your time, raise us up into the positions of leadership in the church that you would have us each one to be in. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's start out with what we're doing here. So, Christian leadership in the scriptures is always related to the local church. It's not a thing that just kind of floats out there. It's always related to what a person's role is in the local church. And so as Paul goes out as an evangelist or a missionary, and some of you feel called to go out and to be missionaries. And if you go out as a missionary, bringing people to Christ through evangelism is going to be the first step to building a church. But say you get 5, 10, 15 people come to salvation, the next step should be to create a church, to form a church, and to see the basic foundation and functioning of a church grow and grow so that what we see happening here can happen somewhere else. It's not enough for just a group of Christian people to get together and high-five each other and pray for each other periodically. I had some real head-to-head just confrontations when I did college ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, which I love Campus Crusade for Christ. I don't have any problem with Campus Crusade for Christ. But when they said their small group meeting on Wednesday night was the church and they didn't encourage their members to go to church on a Sunday, I had a problem with that. Because they're not marrying, burying, they're not doing the Lord's Supper. I don't believe they should be doing the Lord's Supper. They don't have an elder group to hold them accountable. There is none of the, the functioning of the, the church. It's a bunch of 20-year-olds and two leaders. That's not, that's not a church. That's a, an outreach evangelistic activity, a Bible study group, all of which are good. But as you will find, and all of us have found in our practical living, Any area of the world, like a local neighborhood, a a community like Spotsylvania County, if there are no strong churches in Spotsylvania County, Spotsylvania County will go down the drain. And I've been all over this country arresting people in some of the worst situations and worst neighborhoods, 
And the common denominator of all those places is there are no good churches. And so when there is a church and the church thrives like a lighthouse and it, and it, it spreads truth and hope and forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it renews and redeems the, the community as people, as individuals come into that. And so it is worth fighting this fight. And this is, this is not going to be easy. There's going to be a certain, we're going to get into all this. I can't, I wish I could just, this is going to take a long time, but it's worth the struggle. Let me tell you that. Like, there's a lot of long days in ministry. Those of you that have been involved with ministry know that it is not an easy thing. It's not always a rewarding thing, uh, but it is so worth it. It's a joyful thing. Roles in church leadership. So when I first put this out, I had a lot more ladies say they're interested. And there's some other ladies that are going to be here too. I think is your wife coming there at some point? She had, we had children obligations. Yep. And so we went back and forth with this as an elder group, like, how, what, 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 you know, how should we do this? And I'm glad y'all are here because what we've decided to do is we're going to provide the leadership training that relates to theological knowledge, becoming a better writer, becoming a better speaker, becoming a better counselor, all of these things. And then you're going to enter into the position in the church that's right for you. And so there are qualifications for roles and, and uh, aspects of the church. And there was a time where women couldn't go to seminary at all, and that's a problem. And I'm glad that those doors are open now. Now, that doesn't mean, um, what that does mean is that we want each person in the church to be as strong in their soul and in their knowledge as they can be uh, and in their character. But we want each one of them to fill into the positions that are right for what God has for them. And so we're very clear in this church that biblical eldership uh, should be for men because spiritually qualified men, as we're going to look at tonight. And where does that come from? Uh, the qualifications for eldership, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to get there in a moment. But God has created men and women differently. Um, and that is something that our world struggles mightily with now. In Scripture... We believe that men and women are created differently because God intended for them to be different. This is not a happen chance thing. This is not something that came about through random time and chance over time, but God making men and women differently and God establishing marriage. Marriage came about before the fall. It came about as a part of the purpose and plan of God in the world and that a man and female, man and woman would come together in marriage and uh, through the normal course of things, uh, produce children in a family, and that the family would then be the foundation of society. And so the family, each family that comes through those doors on Sunday is the foundation of the church. They're little microcosms of uh, what God is doing in the world. And in the, tr in the home uh, and in marriage, there are uh, roles, and those roles differ, and they complement each other. And so there is two Two things can be different and completely not complementary. They just don't fit together at all. I mean, you've got, I don't know, a hammer and a teacup or something. They have no relationship to each other. And then you have things that complement each other, that fit together for a purpose that causes some good end. And that good end is the family. And that family comes into the church and the spiritual leadership that the husband ought to be having in the home, that spiritual leadership comes into this church, 
And then through these qualifications, we draw up a, a number of men that meet the qualifications. And the church also recognizes as spiritual leaders, not only in their home, but in the church as well, to be the spiritual leaders of the church. And it would be out of order for a man to be the spiritual leader of his home and then come into the church and take a back seat of spiritual leader, leadership to his wife that then leads the church. It would be out of order, and every time it happens in a church, it causes all, problem, all kinds of problems and chaos. So, um, however, there are many other roles of spiritual leadership. Now, there's a lot of practical things that can happen in a church, but we're here talking about spiritual leadership, which relates to teaching, counseling, writing, speaking. And so we believe that the eldership of the church or spiritually qualified men ought to be the ones holding the authority of the pulpit and preaching from the pulpit. You'll always see a spiritually qualified man preaching up in the pulpit. And convictionally, we believe that's a command. Um, a conviction is that all of our small group, adult small groups ought to also be led by spiritual men for the same basic reason. But let's, let's do a little talk about this. What's the difference between a command and a conviction? Somebody help me define that. What's a command? What's a conviction? Well, a command would be something that was strictly given with clear definition by God in Scripture. Yeah. Whereas a conviction would be something that you more have a moral uh, and perhaps inspired by the Holy Spirit conviction for or against something that isn't necessarily as clear in Scripture. Okay. It doesn't have to be as clear in Scripture. And if someone disagrees with you, they're not in sin. But it's, some, it's something that you hold based on a series of reasons, biblical reasons, and you think that's the way it ought to happen, and that's the way we're going to do that. So we understand eldership to be commanded in the Scripture, and that the, the authoritative Bible teachers in a church uh, ought to be spiritually qualified men. That's a command. That's a non-negotiable. The having a spiritual man lead in an uh, adult small group is a conviction. I, I don't believe if you have a, you know, a, woman, a, spiritual, a spiritual woman teaching in a small group setting, they're sinful, and I'm going to like, ah, you're totally wrong. We could debate that. But in our church, our conviction is that it ought not to be that way. So that's, that's the way that we do it in this church. And so as people come in, they're, they're uh, folks that come in that disagree with that. And I say, well, that's the way we do it here. So, and for, we believe, good reason. Now, when you get outside of that, the reason why so many of the wonder, this church is so blessed with so many wonderful, godly women, and they embrace the Bible's role of homemaking, of children, of nurturing, of the ministry primarily related to the home. The reason why this world doesn't like that is because the home is completely not valued in our time. The home does not produce money. And because it doesn't produce money and it doesn't produce power or notoriety, it's seen as something that's worthless. And yet everybody wants to come home. And everybody wants to have a beautiful home. And everybody wants to uh, enjoy the goodness of a home. Hospitality is something that's commanded in the scriptures. We can't have small group Bible studies in homes if we don't have homes. And so there are so many things that come through the, the joy of marriage, the nurturing of children, spiritual growth that all relate to strong homes. 
And when there are not strong homes, if all the homes of this congregation are in chaos as people struggle against each other and aren't present and are in and out and nobody watches over it, nobody cares for it, and nobody has anybody over to dinner because nobody knows how to prepare a meal and nobody has time to cook a meal or even have people, it just, it all falls to pieces. But when the wife is, it loves those things that God has said are good, it produces this incredible beauty and this incredible depth and strength within the church. And there are other roles as well. We have spiritual women doing all kinds of different things in this church, which are of incredible value related to writing and counseling and teaching of uh, various uh, youth and children and women. Half this church is women. Okay, when we get into ministry, it is not appropriate for me to be sitting down and counseling another woman in great crisis. When I have to do that, I have to bring another man with me or a second person with me for accountability. It has to be that way. And there are certain things that I as a elder can say to that woman, but there are certain things I will never be able to help her with. Another spiritual woman needs to come alongside her to be able to say those things. Just like in the same way that a spiritual woman with a, another man in the church that's in crisis, we're not going to pair a spiritual woman with a man in crisis for counseling. And I'm not going to pair a woman in crisis with a spiritual man. It makes no sense. But woe is the church that has no spiritual woman to pair with another woman in crisis. And so we are super blessed to have some incredible spiritual women in this church helping other women with their struggles as we have spiritual men helping other men in crisis with their struggles. All this requires spiritual leadership. We hope uh, when pray for strong marriages in this church. We're going to see the role of the husband and wife in the eldership qualifications because it relates partly to the home. It is impossible for me to overstate um, Maria's role in, in this church. Y'all don't see her a lot because she's a behind-the-scenes type of person, but the amount of work that she does in making possible the things that you see here is I cannot, I can never, you will never be able to understand it. I could never do what I do without her doing what she does. We are an absolute team in the way that we work together. She's covering things tonight so that I can be here with you. And if she wasn't covering those things, it, there would be chaos. And so the ability for me to be here and her there, it's a team. If you go out in the mission field as a husband and wife and you don't care for each other and minister together, it's not going to go well. We've seen the catastrophe of that happen in this church where it just it, it fell to pieces because there was not a tight husband and wife team together appropriately ministering. Let's look at some of these qualifications. Uh, some of the biblical qualifications of uh, an elder because though these qualifications specifically speak to eldership, what they are is the standard, the standard for, um, for spiritual leadership in the church. And so if you are able to meet this standard, you're going to be qualified for basically any other role uh, as well. And it's a high standard. So let's see. So one of the practical things that we're going to be doing in this, and uh, I know I can say this because he'll laugh with me, when uh, years ago... Uh, Sam said he felt called to ministry, and uh, he came up and said, I feel called to ministry. 
And I said, Sam, I can't hear you. You're going to have to, you're going to have to learn to speak up. If you're going to be a minister, you're going to have to speak. And he has gotten so much stronger in those things. One of the things that you have to be able to do to be a ministry is to read well, to read the scriptures well and not stumble over it and not squeak it out and not barely anybody be able to understand you. And so as we read the scriptures, I'm going to ask you to read the scriptures. And I would like for you to stand. Uh, part of being able to be in ministry is to get up in front of people and not be terrified and to be able to say things in a, in a coherent fashion. So someone please stand up for me and read First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, which are the qualifications, one of the passages of a qualification for elder. Who's first? All right. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Okay, someone else uh, turn over to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, which is the other list. And someone else, please read that for me. Titus 1, 5 through 9? Yes. Okay. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not found fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. All right, very good. What of these lists here, what is the, what is the main volume of things there? Like what is it mostly? It's character qualities. They're character qualities. That is not normally when a church or an institution is looking for a pastoral lead. Usually they're, they're looking for credentials, knowledge, experience in the role, all this type of stuff. There's nothing here about needing to have been to a school. There's nothing here about how many... There is something about how long you've been a Christian, but not a... You have to be able to teach, it says, and it says specifically that you have to be able to um, uphold sound doctrine and counter those that would bring false doctrine into the church. So there is a level of knowledge, and that matters, and we're going to get to that. But character is the predominant thing. The ability to be a person that stands up there 
and is not seen as a hypocrite because of the way that you live. Because you can get up there and speak a very correct sermon. But if the people know in your life that you are uh, not self-controlled, you're out of control, that you are cheating on your wife, that you are not a respectable person, that you're not hospitable, you never have anybody into your house, you are a drunk, you're violent, you're picking a fight with everybody that's around you, you are a materialist because you love money, uh, that your household is a train wreck. I, I, it is amazing to me. I, I've had, and you've probably had the same experience, someone that is in ministry and you're sitting here having this wonderful spiritual conversation with him, and their bratty kid comes up to you and says, Dad, I want this now! And he says, Oh, son, son, just hold on. And he's not that, and just like starts hitting on the dad, like just going bonkers, and you're thinking, What is happening here? And this kid is completely out of control, and the parent obviously has no idea what to do with this situation. And I mean, it is just, it's one thing for a child to be a child, and it's another for a kid to be completely out of control and totally undisciplined. And I have seen way more pastoral households, and I'd like to admit, where the kids were completely out of control and undisciplined, and they don't meet this qualification here. And they shouldn't be in ministry, because it, what does it say? How can they possibly manage the household of God if they can't manage, you know, three little kids at home? And that's a, that's a qualification for a reason. And you can go down the line. But character is radically, radically important. Um, does this mean a person has to be perfect? Of course not. Nobody can be perfect. We're not, I'm, not, I'm definitely not perfect. This is a scary list for all of us that are on the elder board. Because you look at this and you see all of your faults and you say, God help me, Like, should I even be doing this? And... That's, I think, the right attitude, where there's a fearfulness to enter into this role. That when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, that you would say, you know, oh, like, I pray that people see something of Jesus in me, because I see all the sin and all the problem and all the struggle, but may there be something of Jesus that's clear in me that people can see that and follow after me, because we are all sinners. And we're all going to stumble and fall in various ways. And we're going to have to ask for forgiveness and receive the grace of God and be forgiven. But you do have to be in front of the people. You have to be, you can't lead from the back. You lead from the front. And if you're not in some way ahead of your people in both knowledge and character, you can't lead them. Because you don't have anything to either teach them because they already know what you know or they're already beyond you in the way that they're living for Christ and you're catching up to them. To be a leader, you have to be out in front. And um, I don't have to say I don't know how to say it any other way than that. Would anybody else like to speak to that or, or say something to that? Okay. You have to look at yourself and say, all right, if I am going to be a spiritual leader in this church, if I'm going to lead the youth group, or I'm going to lead the children's ministry, or I'm going to be an elder, or I'm going to be a, a counselor to other people in need, where do I need, where am I deficient in this character list? Where am I off? What's, what is a weakness? 
everybody likes to train to their strengths already. That's just like when you go to the gym and the guy that's got a massive upper body is like on the bench and he looks like he's walking around with chicken legs because he doesn't like to do squats. It, or the guy that's huge and like Mr. Muscle, but he can't run across the parking lot without losing his breath. This guy needs to go run some laps. And, but everybody likes to train to their strength. They don't like to train to their weakness. But we need to train to our weaknesses. And so you have to be honest with yourself. And if you can't see it, you need to ask your spouse or ask a good friend, what are weaknesses in my life? Where is a place that I know I need to get stronger in? And let them tell you. And then that becomes a matter of prayer. It becomes a matter of striving and asking God to bear the fruits of his spirit in the area that's weak in your life so that you can grow there. And then it will build a well-rounded character and strength in your life. Right, we're going to spend more time talking about this in a moment. But for now, just these are the qualifications of the eldership in the church. Um, the elders are going to set the tone. They're not perfect people, but they are going to set the tone for godliness. And if they meet this qualification list, then... It's going to set a tone that's going to, tr the, the, the rising tide is going to raise all ships. And so when you see a, not just one person, but many men with homes that are in order, which means they're married to godly women as well. The women, the, the wives of our eldership are amazing women. They're incredible women. And they, they serve in such an amazing role of leadership in this church and affect other women and other people in this church. It helps the whole thing. And it's the foundation uh, upon which the leadership of the church goes. Um, it is a labor over time. I'm 40, almost 46, so I'm kind of in the middle. So, But it took a long time for me to get to where I'm at. And the Lord put me on the bench for a long time because I had a lot of growing to do. I, I put the knowledge part First, got a lot of knowledge and was behind in the character department and so needed more seasoning on what it means to listen to people and to have compassion on people and uh, to listen to people. And so I'm thankful that the Lord's given me the opportunity to be here. But don't be frustrated with yourself or want to go too fast. You can't make you know, you can you understand the illustration. You can't make a plant grow faster, okay? If you water a tree every single day just because you want to put more and more fertilizer on it, you will eventually kill the tree instead of making it grow faster. You can create healthy conditions where it grows well and bears fruit, but you cannot make it just jump up out of the ground. And you are like a tree, and it's going to take time for you to grow. And so you want to see health and strength and growth rings that are wide, but you cannot make the tree grow faster than it will grow. And so let the Lord work his way in your life over time and be patient. Well, we're going to talk about a, a process of, of spiritual growth and development. And this, is a, this came from Andrew Davis, who's a, the most godly person that I've ever met. And I think that this is an absolutely true uh, progression. Those of you that have been around here for a while have heard me talk about this before, but we're going to talk about it in depth in this class. It is the sanctification process of knowledge, faith, character, and action. Knowledge, 
faith, character, and action. And so um, I'm going to try to get a whiteboard here in the future because I like to write on the whiteboard. But think of it as a square, okay, that the entry point is knowledge. So you have knowledge, you learn something about God. When you learn something about God, it leads to faith, or it can lead to faith. Because when you learn something true about God, you're either going to believe it or you're not going to believe it. But when you believe something that you've learned about God, it leads to a change in your character. It's a change of your person. We've been talking about character traits and qualities. Those things come through you having learned something about God, believed something about God, and then your life, your person changed. Your character is different. And when your character is different, your actions are different. But this is not a one-time turn. This is something that is, that is a turn that is ascending. And it keeps, you keep going around this, and your godliness keeps growing, because as your actions change, you want to learn more about God. You don't go and learn everything about God in one dump. You go and you learn something about God. And you either believe that or you don't believe it. When you believe it, and your character changes some, which means I'm a little more sober-minded, or I'm a little more patient, or I am a little more... Um, you, you take the character quality here. And your actions change. Then you want to go back, and you want to learn more about God. And you learn more about God. And sometimes that's hard. You're like, ah, like you reach a point where you say that some, some doctrines are, are harder than others to digest and to believe. And some people hit a wall in their life. Like they learn something about God, and they go to the faith. Like, I just can't believe that. And sometimes it takes years for people to digest certain doctrines in the Scripture and say, all right, I'm, I'm willing to submit to what I find in Scripture and believe that. And then it, result, and it, it opens the gate again for them to continue in their ascension of growth in character and growth in godliness and growth in faith. This is, I just absolutely believe that this encompasses what we see happening after someone comes to salvation in the Christian life. Does that make sense? Anybody want to ask a question about that? Because we're going to dive into this here. All right. Knowledge. I love Acts 24, 18-24, where it talks about Apollos, who was eloquent and mighty in the Scriptures. That's, a, that's an awesome translation of that. that. The idea of a person having power from God's Word. He, under, he knew the Scriptures, and he comes in with eloquence and speaks about God's Word and speaks from God's Word in a way that helps the people and strengthens them and would love to have heard Apollos preach. Acts 18, 24. Theology is the study of knowing God. And I'm going to break it to you here. Sorry, but all spiritual leaders are readers. If reading is not a part of your life, it has to become a part of your life. You will really only become a, a significant or knowledgeable spiritual leader to the extent that you read, because God's Word is a book. It's not an audio book. It's not a video. It is a book. And there is something very important and powerful about that. When you read a book, your mind has to focus on this. You cannot zone out and read. You, you, can, you can do that, and you get to the end of the page, you're like, I don't remember a single thing I just read. Where was I? What was happening? There? I had to go back and start over at the beginning. Over and over and over. Now, you can let the audio book play, 
and you're like, oh, I, I missed that. Oh, whatever. Like, let's just keep going. It is not the same thing. When you read, you have to focus on something and you have to digest it in your mind and you have to consider what is being said there. And you can get to the bottom and say, like, I just read all those words. I don't understand anything that was just said there. And so you have to go back and you have to keep working it in your mind until there is understanding of it. And reading causes the, our, our cognitive functions to put things together in a way that watching a video and listening to something do not have the same effect on our mind. There is a reason why God has revealed himself in a written word. And that's because there is no deeper way to convey information or meaning than by a written word. And it's not by accident that the New Testament is written in Greek, the most detailed language ever devised by man. There are so many different nuances of the words and the, and the way in which they're written and the way in which they can be interpreted that there is incredibly clear meaning to us being conveyed as to who God is and what he has done in the world. And so if we are going to enter into theology or the study of God, we have to be a reader. And it starts with the scriptures. But then there are countless things written by other people that have read this that we also enter into reading. I mean, in general, every leader that I know is a reader. They, they are always interested in what other people have to say and reading what they have to say, digesting those things. Because when you read often, you also will be able to write. Your ability to write will correlate to how much you read. And your inability or your unwillingness to read correlates into your inability to write. Because all of this relates to your, your thinking. There's a, there's a hierarchy of thinking and expression. The, the lowest level is you rolling it around in your own head. Like, oh yeah, I got this. I got this. Like, I totally understand that. And then the second level is talking to somebody. So how often have you thought in your mind, oh, I got this totally squared away, and you go and talk to somebody about it, and you're stumbling all over yourself. And you're like, oh, well, maybe I don't quite understand that as well as I thought. Because when you had to say it, it didn't come out quite as well as it was rolling around in your mind. Well, the next level is when you have to write it. Because you can talk to somebody and say, oh, I got this. And they say, well, why don't you write that, write that up for me so we can print it. And then people like, like oh, you know, it's, it doesn't look as good on the paper as it did when I said it. There's all kinds of problems here. And so you have to get more careful and more defined when you write something. And the highest level of careful clarity is when you have to get up there and say it. Because you're not, you can't just read something. It's not the same thing. But it has to be said with particular clarity. You can't just get up there and shoot from the hip and say whatever you want to say. That's why I have a serious problem. Unless you are an absolute genius, and maybe there are some of those in this room, but I am not, to be able to get up there and speak with no notes and say careful, particular, true things about God and man. I, you, just, you have to write it down. And so there's a process of reading it. You go through the whole line to get to the end. So you read it, you process it in your mind, you say it to other people, you do something to write it out, and then you get up there and say it again. And there's been this you know, quadruple refining of your thoughts and words until you get to the best level that you can get it to. Questions or comments there? I love digital, right? Mm -hmm. 
but there's nothing like studying with a print Bible. And I, and I feel like that's important for two reasons. One, it slows you down yep. to have that thought process. But another thing I, I realized early on, you know, when the iPads first yep. came out, and I'm like getting a Bible on it, reading it, my kids thought I was playing games. <laughs> and so when they came to well. see me, they didn't see me studying, they saw me playing games. So once I realized that, when they come and see like where I, where I do my study and everything, Bible's open, they know that I'm not playing games. Yep. They know what I'm doing. This thing, you never have to turn the notifications off. It never beeps. It never, it just, it's quiet. And it just sits there and allows you to think and contemplate. And I'm sure you've seen, I mean, my, my notes are handwritten. And that's just my, that's a thing I do. But for me, writing it out actually helps me process it. It's, it's, for me, it's a part of the processing. And you may process differently. We'll get to that later. You have to figure that out yourself. But we are going to read here. And I'm going to give you book, a book list each semester. And however much you read will really be how much you get out of this. And so if you can just read one or two of these, then great. But if you really want to make progress in spiritual development, you're going to have to read a lot. You're going to have to turn the TV off more. There is a reason why this is like an attachment to my body, because there's always a book in there, and there's always stitching together the moments and the time of the day to be able to find some time to read here or there, and always trying to uh, read. You should read good books, and you should read broadly, and a lot of different things here. So one of the other things about reading is um, when I went back to school, I had, a real, I had I was the guy who read and got to the bottom of the page and because by the time I got to the bottom of the page, I was fishing. <laughs> I was thinking, right? It was distracted. Yeah. But the more you do it, the actually the better you get at it. It's just Absolutely. like any muscle. So if you start reading here and you're feeling frustrated, keep at it because you will get better. You're going to develop that just like a regular muscle. A hundred percent. And... You know, an illustration that I love related to this is um, when I went to college, uh, I helped with college ministry, and the man who led the college ministry was a guy, he and his wife, uh, De- Roger Critcher and Denise Critcher. Roger was the teacher, and he was this, this spiritual leader. He was awesome. Hundreds of college students would fill up the gym of this church to hear this guy teach. He had n- it was a college group of people at Appalachian State University. He had no college degree. He owned a trucking company and a Christmas tree farm. But he had the character. And the previous college minister was booted after he was sleeping with one of the college students. And they fired him. And they came to Roger because they knew he was a man of character and, and thought he would be willing to help out. And said, hey, will you be willing to teach this group of people? He's like, I don't know anything about, I mean, I love Jesus, but I don't think I can lead college students. And this goes back to you have to be ahead of the people that you're going to lead. And so he gave himself a theological degree. I remember when I came into this house, he'd been doing this for 15 years. And there, I'd never seen so many theological books anywhere in my life other than this man's house. I mean, he had 10 times the library that we have over there in this house. And he had become a reader to learn about God and who he was so that he could teach college students well. And he had a passion for it. And his passion for Jesus transferred over to us for that passion. And he and Denise are still going They have been doing this for almost 30 years now. There is no telling how many pastors, missionaries, and Christian people have passed through their home over those years. And Denise's hospitality is boundless. 
every Friday night, their home was open for everybody. And it was just mayhem. And everybody was over there out on the back porch and whatever. And never get this time. I mean, her mother was dying, and so her mom came to live with them. And so instead of cutting us all out, like mom's, you know, whatever hospital bed got rolled right out in the middle. Everybody was like, hey, mom. And like every, every night, there were people sitting there talking to her. She loved it. We loved it. It was amazing. And it was, it, was a, it was a hotbed of spiritual growth, but it came from, you know, Roger's passion to know God, which was definitely linked to reading and, and processing these things in his mind. And you can get there as well. It is exactly what was just said, that your tastes can change, your mind can grow and strengthen just like your body can grow and strengthen if you have the desire to do it. If it's a weakness, train to your weakness. As the sheet goes around, I'll send you out the email with uh, the reading list. But I'll read it off here for you. We're going to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World by Stephen Nichols, Conviction to Lead by Albert Moeller, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, and The Deliberate Church by Mark Dever. So we're going to try. That's about one and a half books a month. Okay, so we'll see how we can do there, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go for it. So we've got about that many each each semester. So you'll have read about twenty books if you go through all all four semesters. And there's some theology, some history, some uh, practical leadership things. We will get into some that are related to preaching for those that feel called to preach, and we'll have an alternate for counseling for those that do not feel led to preach or to like uh, evangelism book or something like that. We'll figure that out later. These are all sort of general for this first start. We're also going to read through First and Second Timothy uh, this this uh, semester. Okay, knowledge. Back to knowledge, theology, the study to know God. We talked about the order of clear thinking. I'm going to take a break in about 15 minutes here. True learning, as this, this is J.I. Packer in uh, Knowing God. True learning of God leads to humility before God, comfort from God, and encouragement of the soul. And I love that. That's a beautiful thing. If your learning about God leads you to pride and legalistic angst in your heart and ability to leverage other people, you have not really learned about God. Because when you learn about God, it will strike your soul and bring you to a humble place. But then you'll learn the gospel, and the gospel will raise you up through the grace of Christ Jesus and comfort your soul and then give you the desire to minister that grace to other people that they might come to know Christ in the same way that you know Him because of the joy that it brings you. Knowledge. Leading to faith, believing what you learn. I think that every single one of us need to really examine our hearts and do we believe what we know about God? Because when you believe what you know about God, it it changes your character. But I think there's a great many people that have been raised in the church that know a lot about God that don't really believe those things about God. Because if they did... They wouldn't live the way that they're living. Their character wouldn't be the way their character is. And so each of us have to look at our heart significantly and say, do I really believe what I know about God? Would anybody like to give an example of that or something that comes to mind when I say that? Josh?
times where I was forced to examine in this critical moment my life's on the line I'm in the hospital bed I'm getting cut open you know yeah. what do I really believe in where's my heart at where do I think I'm going to be if this goes wrong yeah. you know uh, we're always very difficult but on this side of it you know like um, I feel stronger and bigger um but a lot of that came from in those moments where I was struggling and I was reading yeah. and, and just hanging on and felt like I wasn't succeeding. Those things were being put in me in a way. And, you know. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That nice, clean process of knowledge, faith, character, action the way the Lord cements these things into our heart is to take us to a place of great need, a place where we have to get down on our knees and confess our sins, and we have to say, God, this is so hard. I just I don't, I don't understand what is happening here or where this is going. I mean, a lot of you guys know our story, but you know, when things went so bad at the first church I pastored, and we ended up, that's how I got in the Bureau, but it was, getting in the Bureau is not a good thing for me, and when we moved to Miami, um, that was the death of a vision for me. I'd spent 10 years trying to prepare for and study for ministry, all the effort that I could possibly give it, and it came to absolutely nothing. And it was such a high-cost area. We were totally broke, and I had four kids in this crappy little place, and it was just, it was hard. And it was, it was a different experience than Josh, but it was, it was no less real. And... I was angry with people in the denomination that I thought didn't help me and like why did none of this work out and it was just it was very hard and it was very real and it took years for that to reconcile itself in my heart and for me to come back and say all right God I'm going to believe what you have said is true and that came partly by the help of other Christians we need each other there's a reason why the church is so important when you see somebody struggling like that and going through something like that, it is really important as a spiritual leader that you notice it and do what you can to come alongside them and encourage them and say, Brother, sister, you know, don't give up. Don't stop keeping your eyes on the Lord. Let's, let's do this together. Let me, let me help you along. There are people in this church all the way back from that time that helped me get through that period of time, and I'm grateful for them. They helped to strengthen my faith, to believe that what God has said is true, and over time, it radically changed my character. Um, character, I think, well, before leave faith, we are, it is one of the fundamentals of the Christian life that we are called to walk by what? Faith. That means I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, and I have to trust God for it. 
and as Americans, we want we are planners and we are type A doers, and we want this thing to be cha 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 and like all lined out and done. And that is not how God works. And when He pulls the rug out from underneath you, you need to not be shocked by that. That you are now being forced to walk by faith because you did not want to walk by faith. Well, now I'm going to make you walk by faith. And God works like that. And so when you see it happen in your own life. And then you can help see it happen in another person's life and help them understand what's happening there so that you can walk with them through that. But we walk by faith always. We'll never come to a place where we don't walk by faith. Character, uh, I think a, a good definition of character is true piety. Piety is not a word that we hear often anymore, but it, it's, it's godliness, true godliness. And there have been ebbs and flows in the church to knowing nothing about God, to sort of coming back and learning about God and knowing about Him and being passionate for Him, but then going to the knowledge side where there's no true piety. There's just a lot of knowledge. And so there are actually pietistic movements in church history where people are like, no, we've got to get back to having a true heart, earnest passion for God. It should be both. We should have an earnest passion for God, a true godliness that is rooted in the deepest parts of our character. And these qualifications of the eldership should come from that, where a knowledge of God that is believed and transforms your heart to where when a person encounters you, they really feel like, man, I have been around a godly person. I've been near someone who has been near to God. I mean, have you ever felt like that when you get around somebody? You're like, man, that person has been near to God. I, I want to be more. I want to be around that person more. I hope that you know some people like that. And spiritual leadership is you being that in some way to another person and helping them realize that God is real. His word is true. Uh, these things are not uh, a fault. They're not a farce. They're, they're, they're for real. And that person sees true piety in your life. But again, it comes progressively. All of us are progressively putting to death the flesh, progressively putting on the new man and making progress in our life. One of the things I love about this church is that there's a whole bunch of people over the age of 40 that are more passionate about pursuing Christ after 40 than they were before 40. I want to see all the people under 40 also passionate about Jesus, but a lot of people run out of gas around 40, and it's just this coasting or this declining sadness. If we're closer to heaven and our faith becoming sight than we were before, we ought to be more passionate. We ought, there ought to be an acceleration curve to our life as we pass 40, wanting to be more near to the Lord. And I love the people in this church that are passionate in that way, both men and women that have just, I, so these ladies that have gone back and gotten counseling degrees in order to open this counseling center and do a great job, it's amazing to me. It is an amazing amount of work and a passion to go listen to people's problems all day, which just sounds depressing and so hard to sit there and listen to people outpour all their struggles on you every day. But what an important thing. Because everybody, the counselors are so, so needed. And um, anyway, character leading to action. There must be action. It is not enough to come here. I mean, I just talked to a person 
this past week. He said, you know, it's like I've, I've stalled out in my, in my Christian faith and I don't know what to do. And, you know, I asked him partly about action. You know, what, what are you, what way are you doing something for God? How are you obeying God in a real active way in your life? And I think the great illustration of this is the potted plant that has no hole in the bottom. What happens when you keep pouring water in a potted plant that has no hole in the bottom? What happens? It dies. Why does it die? Rots the roots out because there's no flow through. If you sit here and just want, well, I want to get poured into, I want to listen to yet another sermon, I want to read another book, and, and it's just, it's like a potted plant with no hole in the bottom, and there's no outflow, it will not work out. It will not produce the spiritual growth you think it will. It need, these things need to come in, and they be, they're learned, believed, changes your heart, and then you act. You go and do what God leads you to do. You will be led by God to act and to do certain things. And often, it's not what you want to do. And you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, well... This is what I'm asking you to do. And, I, you know, the comic part of my life that Maria and I laugh about all the time, the one, the, 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 basically the three things that we said we had no real interest in was planting churches, missions in Africa, and foster care and adoption early on. We're like, you know, God has an ironic way of working with us. That he, he brings us into all the things that we feel ill-equipped for and have no real desire to do. And then that's exactly what he asks you to do. So that you're weak, he's strong, your heart is changed, and you become a very different person through following after Jesus. Because God's ways are not our ways. And when you think you've got it figured out, you don't. We must act. Um, that action in the Christian life, I believe, will always be sacrificial. You would come after me, must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. Americans don't like, I don't think anybody likes that deny yourself part. We like to pamper ourselves, give ourselves what we want. I deserve this. Uh, you, um, it, it just doesn't work that way. So um, I think when you can noticeably see self-denial in your life, you're probably on track with what God has for you to do, or at least partly on track there. I know for us, you know, there have been certain markers in our life and um certain things just never go away and they keep being hard but we came up here and none of this was in any of our minds and i, I took a certain position that was considered a hardship role and after six years of service with that group you get to transfer anywhere you want to in the bureau and the plan was always oh, we're going to go back to one of our family's hometowns they both had land they both were offering us land you know one of them is Beautiful, you know, eight-acre lake and this beautiful piece of property here. Have a piece, have have a house right here. You know, build your house right here. And you know, when it came to the six-year mark, was when this place got God. Nothing is, it, nothing is by happenstance with God. It's just not. And so, when we came to that six-year mark and we were getting ready to pull the plug, was when the reality of this place started to churn up. And that was when I went to this missionary commissioning service where David Platt was speaking. And that, that guy, just, the Lord just destroyed me in that service. And it was this overwhelming just compulsion of you have got to get back into pulpit ministry. And the Lord's going to make a way for you to plant a church. And it all started working out. But that meant saying no to going back home. And we haven't. But still, every time I go back and visit and that plot's sitting right there, it's just like, ah, oh, this is such a beautiful place. You know, but 
life is not about sitting by the pond and having your pole hanging in the water. There's times for react, relaxation, but that's not what life, this is where God has us, and this is where we're going to stay until he calls us to something else. But I don't know that he ever will, because I, I love being here and doing this. And um, somehow or another, something like that is going to happen with you. And it was hard for Maria, hard for all, us to have kids and never be near our parents because we didn't have that help of grandparents. They came to us often, but we'll see how it works out in your life. But that action is going to have a cost. You're going to have to say no to something to say yes to something else. And it will lead you to live a remarkably different life than the world around you. And I believe that the marker of your actions will be the fruits of God's Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Your life is going to be marked by these things, the actions that you take. All right, knowledge, faith, character, action. We're going to kind of keep coming back to this over time, but this is what we are aiming at. I'll say one last thing before we take a break here. John 4. Uh, turn over to John 4 with me. John 4 is the story of the woman at the well and um, this is an extremely, I mean, I, this is you know, like a life verse, but this is one of the, in my Bible, I have certain verses written in the front, ones that are major markers for me. And when we started this, when I went through that last turn I was talking about of, of uh, um, turning away from, from one direction of life to another direction of life, yeah, I wrote this back in, you know, up here about four or five years ago. Uh, was Luke nine sixty two? Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." So there's no turning back on this. This is this is we're all in on this, and God help us, we're gonna we're gonna go for it. And look what the Lord's done with this. There was nothing here before, and now what's here by faith. This one is the one that I love to talk to people about when they say, you know, how can you do all that you do? They does this like wear you out. You need to take more time off and all this other stuff. You need to have more margin in your life. And like, I understand. But America has lots of margin, okay? Like in certain, some ways, some not ways. Let's talk about this for a moment. When you go and read biographies, we're going to read biographies. And you read about George Whitfield preaching 10 sermons in one week in seven different counties. There's no margin in that guy's life. And thousands and thousands of people came to salvation. When you read about you know, Spurgeon, get it, the church being open from 6 a.m. in the morning to 11 o'clock at night with all kinds of things happening six days a week and preaching and preaching and preaching and missionaries that go out to the field and pour out their life all the way into death to see people. There's no margin there. But why is that? Where's the line of healthy and not healthy? And like, what are we talking about here? I believe that this is the key to these things. So Jesus has been walking down the road to Samaria, and um, there's, he meets this woman at the well, and the disciples go into town because they don't have any food, leaves him sitting there by the well, and he enters into the spiritual conversation with this woman, and then she you know, realizes and then believes that he's the Messiah. And the disciples come back from town, and verse 31 Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And his disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I think it's somebody like snuck him a sandwich real quick and he didn't, didn't see it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What does that mean? What does that mean, Travis? It means you're filled up and you're replenished by doing God's will. Yeah. You know, in John, he talks about, uh, later in John, 1 John, First John, uh, let's get here. First John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, there is joy in serving Jesus. Serving the Lord is not a long list of burdensome legalistic requirements that God is always angry with us and frowning on us. The price has been paid for our sins on the cross. The, the walk of serving Christ and being near Him is a life of joy. It's an opportunity to walk in the way that God would have you to walk in and to do what God has asked you to do. And if you are actually threading the needle correctly, which means you you haven't encrusted it with a bunch of mess that you created or the people around you created, but you're actually doing what God would have you to do, there is unbelievable joy in entering into what God has called for you to do. The guys that are serving on the elder board of this church, they do not do it with a long face dragging in the door every day. They love what they do, and it's an amazing opportunity to serve together. Sherry and what she does with our kids, it is amazing. Eric loves preaching and leading our young people and seeing them come to salvation and see their lives changed and see them pulled away from the world. Any missionary that goes to the field should go with joy. Yes, it's going to be hard, but I want to see you come to salvation. And when that first person comes to salvation, it's the greatest thing in the world. And then when five or ten come to salvation, then there's a church and you're preaching at a church and it didn't exist there before. It's awesome. Can it? Can you... Where this gets out of control is when we depart from what God has for us. So why this stays healthy in, in a setting like this is we have many other leaders. I'm not doing everything. I don't, I don't try it. I don't even... I don't, even come close to attempt to do everything. People that try to do everything, they go beyond a healthy uh, round of this. Part of my obedience is my obedience to be a good father. Part of my obedience to God is to be a good husband and to make the proper time for my family. But what is not there, I did not get to watch the Buffalo Bills game yesterday. Would have been nice. I didn't have a chance. Why? And I'm not, I'm not trying to... I'm going to give some practical things here, and you have to hopefully see that I'm not trying to... I'm just telling you the way it is, okay? I mean, this is not an arrogance thing. This is just the way it is. And you have to see this so you can hopefully do better than I do. But we had a couple come over for premarital counseling. They stayed for, with us for dinner, and, you know, they had things that they needed to talk about, and, you know, we're helping them form a healthy marriage. And so that was a joy. It was great to be there. But you got to die. I had to die to football to be able to have dinner with these, this young couple and be present with them. Not want to be somewhere else, but want to be with them. And it was a wonderful time. It was not a hard thing to sit there and share dinner with him. He's a young Marine. He's up at this TBS. And, you know, we were able to encourage and pray for them. And it was a joy.
Maria prepared a wonderful meal and the hospitality of the home and all the stuff that we're just talking about. I mean, it, this is a good thing. It's a joy. Good old C.S. Lewis. We're going to read some C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Love C.S. Lewis. Blinded by the, to the divine by the mundane. This is joy. If your living for Jesus does not have a joyful tone to it, there's a problem. But that's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, not your fruit. Not, I'm going to be more joyful. It's God. Give me your joy. Lord Jesus, help me to be a more joyful person. Bear your joy in my life so that other people can see your joy in me. That's what the fruits of the Spirit are. Any comments or questions before we take a little break? All right. All right. So part of this group... And the action of this group is you doing things. So uh, part of all good leadership is delegation. And you should be doing the thing that only you can do, really. And the thing that really fits with you or the thing that you know you ought to be doing. I need somebody to type this up. <laughs> Who can type this up? Who has the time, the ability to type this up? Thank you so much, Izzy. I appreciate that. And uh, I'll give you an email address. I'll write my email address on there at some point. Thank you so much. Um, people that try to do everything themselves, how, how does that work out? Disaster. In any form of business, any church, people that are black holes and try to do everything themselves, it's a form of arrogance, really. Because you think you can do it better than anybody else. And so, you know, I'm just going to take care of this. You know, because you don't want to talk to other people. You don't want to deal with the imperfections of other people. You just want to do it all yourself. That's terrible. By doing what you know you ought to do and you're called by God to do and looking at other people and the gifts and talents that they have and giving them things to do and allowing them to do those and grow and develop themselves, it allows so many more people to be active, to be a part of things, to be it's encouraging how many people have said in this church, I've never had a meaningful role of service in a church till I came here. And I know for one guy in particular, it, has been, it, it took him from a place of being suicidal to the happiest years of his life. And that is awesome. But if you do everything yourself, you rob the opportunity of other people to serve the Lord with the gifts and the abilities that they have. Okay, part of what we're going to do here is practical notes and nuggets. So I've got this long list. One day I'm going to write a book on it of just practical things in the church that you need to keep in mind. So we're going to keep learning about knowledge, a lot of knowledge, but I want to, I want to have practical things. So I'm going to run through five practical things related to church ministry and church leadership uh, as we round out the night. And then we'll take questions and pray for each other. First is love people genuinely like Jesus would. Love people genuinely like Jesus would. If that doesn't immediately resonate with you, you need to go back and read the Gospels again. Read, read something like you should have immediate examples that pop into your mind about Jesus touching leprous people, 
talking to prostitutes, talking to diseased people, the, the passages that talk about the lines of people out the door so long that they didn't have time to eat until it was late in the night with Jesus taking time one-on-one -on -one with people to hear their problems and talk to them and pray for them until he was worn out. And then he'd go up in the mountains and pray and recharge his life. And your life as a Christian leader must be marked with genuine Christian love to where the people that encounter you they know that you love them in a way that is similar to Jesus. And so uh, it's got to be there. I know you've been around leaders in the church like I have that you walk away from them and you have the opposite impression. You're like, wow, I think that person hates me or has a serious problem with me. I, I don't understand what's going on here. This is weird. But, you know, they're the leader, so maybe that's the way I ought to be too. Or you know, I don't know, but am I the only one that's had those experiences in church? So, um, a command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. You don't get to make up the terms of the love. Some, some of the churches in our, our day and age get way off course because their version of love is not the love of Jesus. It's some other form of weirdness. But as I have loved you, so you must love one another but this, every, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Your leadership must be marked by love. Um, when you love people, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You listen to them. You observe them. You try to help them in every way that you can. Uh, it's just very important. Anything else you may want to say about that one? Love people genuinely as Jesus would. sticks out to love someone to love one another when when Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself he immediately launched into the story of the Good Samaritan and when the Good Samaritan came along and did what he needed to do he looked and he saw a need and so if you're not outward looking at people and you're not looking at what people's needs are so because yes. you don't know them because you don't talk to them because you don't have them over to your house because you're not in any sort of Bible study with them, you have a relationship with them, you can't really love someone if you don't know them. Yes. So if you come in the door and you never talk to anybody and you leave again, you can't really love someone because you have no idea what they're going through, you have no idea how you can help them because at the end of the day, you have to love your neighbor and your neighbor in that instance was someone who is in need. Yeah. So the Good Samaritan saw the need, he met the need as Jesus would, yeah. and. And that was, was what Jesus is teaching. And so if you're never in a place where you're looking for someone's needs, you're looking for someone who needs a friend, who needs a meal, That's who right. needs a new winter coat, you can't really love them because you're not actually paying attention to look out for that opportunity. That's exactly right. And the reason we're doing this is I cannot possibly know all the needs of the people in this church. I cannot possibly do what Matt just said for all these people. And so that's why we have to keep multiplying the leadership of the church. And I want to press you, as a part of this group, what Matt just said has got to be true of your life. You've got to have a spectrum of people that you know in this church and that you're always looking for somebody else. I would encourage you specifically, when you come in here on Sunday morning, there are certain people that are sitting by themselves, obviously, noticeably. 
I mean, every single week I find somebody either before service or between service that is sitting by themselves and clearly not connected to anybody here and go up to them and say, welcome to church. I don't think I know you. And we have to practice these things. So I go up and I say, um, because it could be a person that's been sitting there by themselves for a month and I didn't realize it. And it's the first time. I just come up to them and I, as genuinely as I can, say, welcome to church. My name's Vic. I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, have you been here before or is this your first time? I let them say whatever they're going to say. If it's been, I granted the guy at the coffee bar, yeah, I've been here for six months. I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. But uh, it's great to meet you and I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Or tell me how you came into the church. Some, something that puts the ball in their court for the conversation, that you can learn something about them, like Matt said. Now, sometimes like the alarm bells immediately go off, like something, this person's in a state of crisis. I mean, I've, we've had people come through here where you, know, you say that, oh, welcome to church, my name's Vic. Um, how'd you find us? How'd you make your way into Redeemer? I just moved here, and when I did, my husband died, and now my son won't speak to any anymore, and I'm in this area, and I have I don't know anybody, and I was you know afraid I was going to kill myself this past week, and here I am in church. Like, well, can I give you a hug? You know, like this is terrible, and that's when you don't say, oh, you know, I I gotta go get the nursery. I'll see you later. That's what you don't do. Like somebody else is going to have to go get the nursery. That is a divine appointment. God just had you run into somebody that desperately needed to talk to somebody on Sunday morning. And he put you there to minister to this person. And so you've got to do something with that. You've got to pray for this person, show kindness, show love, do something that they may need. Ask them, can, is there something that I can do for you today that would help you? And sometimes they will say, yeah, I need this. All right, like we're going to rally the troops here and we're going to go do this thing. And... Um, it becomes life-changing for people. I've seen people in this church see families or young people drive by and notice that their tires are worn out and go buy them tires that week because they've noticed their tires. Like, Do you notice people's tires when they drive by and whether they need that and realize these are a young couple. They don't have, they don't have any you know, struggle with job, two kids. Like, it's tires probably worn out because they can't fix them, and then they go do something about it. That's, that's this type of mentality that especially as Christian leaders we have. We have to have. Okay, number two, have hard conversations with compassion and humility, but speak the truth. You must be able to have hard conversations with people or you will never be able to function as a leader in any place, but especially the church. There are lots of hard conversations that the elder group has to have with people um, in various different ways. Um, we always try to do that with compassion and humility. Sometimes we're very right. Sometimes we only have part of the picture and we need to get the rest of the picture. There's various ways this works out. But when you know as a leader there's a problem, so say you're over some area of ministry, let's say you're over the children's ministry or some reason, and you've got a teacher that is definitely a problem. Like this person's losing their temper with the kids and is unprepared and like this is a problem. This is not, this cannot keep going. You have to say something about it. And if you're in charge, you're the leader, you must sit this person down before it becomes a crisis or something really bad happens. Like let me tell you, give you, give you this one. These are all real examples. 
person that came to this church recently said, how'd, how'd you find us? Uh, well, we were at another church, and um, we found out that the person uh, that was leading a part of the children's ministry is under investigation for child pornography and child uh, abuse in this area. And we went to the pastor and said, surely you know, we just heard about this. Do you know that this person is under investigation for uh, child abuse and child uh, pornography? And the pastor was like, ah, yeah, yeah, we've kind of known that about Billy for a while. Uh, we're working with him, though, and we're trying to, you know, we're, we're going to, we believe that God's at work in his heart. And this guy said, what are you talking about? Why is he still in the children's department working with the children? And this guy loses his mind and threatens to like tell the whole church this, and they finally go in and remove this guy and they're like oh, thank you you know and then about three weeks later guy's back in there well you know we've prayed with billy billy's like he's like everything's good he's back to where he needs to be and this is this is out of control folks like stuff like this you hear insane that's one of the worst i've ever heard but that came from a church in this area Part of the role of the eldership is to guard the church. You are a shepherd, and part of the role of a shepherd is to, to protect your people. So sometimes the protection is from outside. Sometimes it's from deeply problematic people inside, and this can work out in a lot of different ways. We'll have to spend a lot of different time talking about this. But if you cannot have a hard conversation with a person, you will never be able to lead. You're not in anger. It's with gentleness. It's listening, but you will speak the truth. And if at the end of that conversation you have established that this problem is not changing and that this is a problem, you have to do something about it. And uh, you cannot let it, you can't let the cancer stay or the problem remain. And there will be times that you have to take action that is not easy, um, but you have to be able to do that. All right, third. Be available often to talk with people uh, before and after service, home, by phone, whatever. Be available to talk with people. I have lost track of how many people have come into Redeemer from, uh, in this setting, I'll be glad to say this, uh, from LifePoint. And they have said, I can't believe you're talking to me. And the first time I heard that, I was like, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, the pastor at LifePoint doesn't talk to anybody on purpose he has this guard around him and he comes in and he goes out and if you try to make an appointment you can't ever reach him it's he, you cannot talk to him and now i've heard that so many times it must be true because i've heard it from i, I don't know I've, I've lost count of how many people i've heard that from that's abominable did jesus act that way if jesus was not too important to talk to people how do you think you're too important to talk to people jesus got down in the street and talked with people and held their hands, and the little kids that were screaming and running around, he said, bring those children to me. And he was with the people. You, if you're going to lead people, you have to be with them. You have to love them. You have to do the best you can to know their name, know their struggles, care about their struggles, uh, and be with them, and be accessible to them. That doesn't mean you have to answer the phone all night, or as soon as the text dings, you got to answer the text immediately. But... I do answer every text that comes to my phone. Not immediately, but it will be at some point. And every great Christian leader, you read a, a good biography about them, I mean, they, had, they were responding to letters to all hours in the night. 
And when the door, they would have office hours, people would come and they'd line up and they'd hear every single person early in the morning to late at night. And what a joy if the Lord is using you in such a way that people want to come to you for ministry and for prayer and for these things. So be accessible uh, to the people. And when we are, when, when that is broadly true of us, it spreads out the load uh, because there's lots of trusted people that a person can talk to, lots of trusted people that they can go to for prayer, lots of trusted people they can go to for a wise word. There's not just one person. There's many, and that's important. Fourth, oh, we've already said this one. Uh, read good books, read broadly. All right, we'll just pass by that one. The fifth one, call visitors every week. So now that's a very pointed one. But if you lead a small group or you are over an area of ministry, you should call the visitors that come into your sphere of influence every single week. So every new person that comes in this church that fills out a visitor card or something, I call them once they come. I know I called Darren not too long ago, and here he is sitting right here. And again, I'm astonished by how many times people say, I cannot believe you're picking up the phone and calling me. No pastor's ever called me. That's an that's a indictment on the church. If a person is going to... If, if Jesus causes somebody to walk through the door and sit down here and fill out a card that says, please call me, and you don't call them, and you say, please, God, open doors for me to speak to people about Jesus, and like you're not talking to that person, you have not even begun to understand what ministry is about. So at least like hit the softballs. The ones that are super easy that walk through the door, call the people. If a new person says, hey, I'm interested in a small group, and they come in, or somebody comes into your youth group for the first time, and you, you know it's a new kid, and you've never seen that kid before, don't let them come in and sit in your group and leave without getting their phone number. And then that week calling them and say, hey, it's great to have you, and uh, tell me a little bit more about your life. And that's the way this works. And... Uh, very, very few people will say, I don't want to talk to you. Like, don't, don't, don't call me. I'm not interested. If they came here, they are interested. And people long for connection. And so when someone comes into your sphere of influence in ministry, call them back. That's all I got for tonight. So some Bible, some practical truths, some basic things that kind of gets us, kind of gets us started. Questions about the night? Anything that's just like, that doesn't make sense, or I disagree with that. Uh, I do have a question. Sam. Um, earlier on, this is maybe a question I should make back to the time, but let's put it out there just to get some thoughts going. Earlier on, you mentioned you don't believe that people should do the Lord's Supper except for in church. I was just wondering. Hmm. Like, Conviction. We try to conduct the Lord's Supper here according to the pattern that we see it happening in the Bible. I and, and maybe I'm wrong, but is there a is there an example anywhere of Scripture of a, of a group of people partaking of the Lord's Supper not in a local church setting? Um, well, Jesus Christ and uh, 
Well, that's true. That, that's a big one, but that's, yeah. So, yeah. I'm not going to say that's wrong. Uh, again, that goes to the conviction, the conviction area of we do it here, and um, I don't, I've never done that with my family at the house. I guess, I'm not going to say that's wrong, though. Uh, yeah. Maybe I overspoke there in saying that. that. But the point of saying that was that a Campus Crusade for Christ Wednesday night meeting is not the church. That was the point of saying that. So, so maybe I overspoke there, Sam. Yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Is a little intimidated by theology when speaking um, with other Christians, just because I feel like sometimes it lends to splitting hairs amongst mm-hmm. the believers, and um, that be kind of just becomes a part of the relationship, I guess, and then a focal point of it. Um, so I guess in my past, like I've always feared, like, look, I'm a Christian. All this theological stuff, man, we, like, I get it, but it's just not my bag, you know? Um, is that, I mean, easy answer is probably yes, but is that a bad approach? Like, I guess when you contrast that with evangelism, because I'm not having a theological discussion with an unbeliever. And so, like... You actually are having a theological discussion with them. You're telling them about God. And they're learning about God. And then you're calling for a decision. So talking about the things of God with godly people is a, is a joyful thing. When it becomes a negative thing is when it becomes either adversarial or a, uh, a person um, demanding that other people listen to what they're saying in a way that is not kind, not gentle. We're called in the scriptures to make a defense for the faith or speak about the faith with all gentleness. Like, let me give you a great example of this. First, uh, this is Second Timothy. Second Timothy uh, chapter 4. This is the last, last chapter that Paul writes in the scriptures. This big, powerful, if I can get this page to turn. Big, powerful exhortation. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Like, this is power, 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 with complete patience. And if we lose patience with people, like, why don't you understand this? Are you just dumb or something like that? That Our theological talk with people has to be with gentleness and patience and respect for the other person. It is right to learn about God and to talk with other people about the things of God. And if it's done with the right attitude, it produces a joyful environment of learning that that brings us all to understand God more because we will only make progress in our sanctification going back to our original example knowledge faith character action you don't learn everything about God in one shot you learn something about God you believe it it changes you you act you learn more every person that makes progress in their faith makes progress through one stop of that cycle is knowledge so you you have to keep learning about God to make progress in your faith so just 
pour a big, big bunch of love and patience and kindness on there, and it'll, it'll help work it out. And I believe that there comes a time in some of those conversations where, all right, you know, you're convinced this person is a Christian, but you just disagree. And it's like, all right, let's, let's just call, let's time out and we'll talk about this later. You know, we'll come back around and let's talk about a different subject next time. And if you just can't reconcile with a person, it's not good to keep just beating that horse. So let's do this. We're going to pray. I'll stay to take further questions, but I, don't, I want to, to release those of you that need to leave because it's 8 o'clock. When we pray tonight, we're going to pray for Andrew tonight. Um, Andrew owns a business called Mission uh, Disposal, which if you see the red dumpsters, red Porter Johns everywhere these days, that's Andrew's company. Um, he's like so many employers struggling with getting enough good employees to function the business. And one of his main employees died yesterday, this morning. This morning. And um, so I want to pray for Andrew. Um, that the Lord will supply him the workers that he needs to be able to do what he does. He's got a good business. And if you know somebody here that needs some form of, of part-time employee, are you part-time only or full-time? That's part of the way these... I can probably use some part-time. Do what? I can probably use some part-time help, but full-time for sure. All right. So if, if you part of how we help each other in church is some networking things. If you know somebody that needs a part-time or a full-time job that's willing to get out there and work... Um, Please let me know or let Andrew know. But we're going to pray for him that the Lord will watch over the family of this man that's died, uh, but also meet Andrew's need and, and work because the demands of work don't stop and there's only, there's only one person. So, Do you know the name of the family? The name of the family? Yeah, Jimmy Brooks. Jimmy Brooks. No, he's a Christian uh, for sure. So we pray for us and pray for Jimmy's family. Lord, we thank you for this night. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters and the chance to gather together here tonight. Um, I pray for Andrew and his business. I pray that you'd meet his needs. I thank you for how far you've brought him, and I pray that you'd bring him the people that he needs to work uh, to be able to uh, accomplish what is before him. I pray that as he walks by faith that you would meet his needs and that he would see those needs met and that he would know you're at work in his life. I pray that you'd teach him all that you need to teach him uh, for the sake of his soul which is of the utmost importance. Be with all of us. Be with Jimmy's family tonight as they grieve his passing, Lord. Uh, comfort them. Help them to know, uh, as we know, Jimmy was definitely a believer, and uh, we know that he's with you now, and we pray for his family that you'd meet their needs. Help us, Lord, as we strive to serve you well, uh, to, be, to enter into your kingdom one day, and uh, be thankful to, to hear the words of well done, uh, your good and faithful servant. Well done, that the life that we lived, we fought the good fight and we finished the race. 
Lord, help us in these things that we might serve you well and that it might lead to your glory and the salvation of the lost. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll pick it up again next week. Those of you that have questions, I'm just going to stay up here. And So one that's maybe applicable to everybody is uh, leading into next week. Do you have any recommendations on reading or once we get yes. reading material? Uh, so we are going to start with uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. So uh, this, if you want to take a picture of this, uh, this ISBN number or whatever, I got this edition from um, from... CBD, uh, Christian, which is not an oil, it's the Christian book distributors. It used to be known as, when you Googled CBD, the Christian book distributors used to come up first, but not anymore. So there's the ISBN. Great, great edition, good, clear print. Um, if, if, you need, if you would like, um, I'm not into handing out books to people who don't read them, but if you would like for me to order the books through the church, and uh, to help you out with that, and you're going to read them, I'll be glad to do that. So let me know if you would like for me to order this set of books through the church, and I'll place a, a group order. But this one, won't, it'll be a little while before this one comes in. So Knowing God is what we're, we're doing first. There is a million copies of this out. It's been out, it's a classic. So you can probably get a used copy for a buck seventy-five somewhere. But uh, Packer, J.I. Packer, P-A-C-K-E-R, Knowing God. So we'll work on this through the month of uh, February. Okay. How much kind of reading are you anticipating this week to next? A couple chapters. I, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily assign the chapters. Like what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you know, by four weeks from now, we need to be done with this. So figure it out. And then I'm going to ask you to write up a, uh, something about this. Let me figure out what the assignment's going to be, but I want you to write like a one-page something on this. I'm going to have you writing, I'm going to have you speaking, and doing these types of things to be able to, uh, and some, some, some of your writings are start appearing in the newsletter, things like that, so it goes out and is helpful to other people as well. So somebody's going to end up writing a book review on this so that other people in the church know about this book and uh, enjoy what you have to say about it. So, all right. Thank you.